Hello, and welcome to the Law of Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and today we're going to listen to an interview that I did with the writer and critic Margot Jefferson about her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir. So let's get right to that interview. I'm so happy to be speaking with the writer and critic Margot Jefferson today. Margot Jefferson began her career at Newsweek, where she was both the first woman and first African-American to serve as book critic for the magazine. Later, she was a staff writer at the New York Times, where she was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for her criticism in 1995. She's the author of the books on Michael Jackson and the memoir Negro Land, which traces her life growing up as a part of a Black professional class in mid-century Chicago, and which received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography in 2016. Just this year, Jefferson was awarded the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize for Nonfiction. She's a professor of writing at Columbia University. She joins me today to speak about her latest book, Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir a formally of inventive and exacting assemblage of personal history and deliberation that delves into Jefferson's familial legacy, her battles with depression, and the oppressive construct of the model minority, the book is also a cultural reflection. It touches on such subjects as Ella Fitzgerald, Bud Powell, Ike Turner, and Willa Cather, especially as they manifest in the author's conception of herself. With a kaleidoscopic sense of voice, Jefferson here enacts the constant toggle of the self, from the harshness of the superego to the curiosity, pain, and enthusiasms of the child, and most of all, the ingenuity of the writer. Thanks so much for being here, Margot. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. I loved this book, as I also loved Negroland, and I was curious to hear what you wanted to do differently here at the Negroland, or what subjects you wanted to address that maybe you didn't get a chance to write about there. How were you thinking of this book in relation to that one? And how was it going to be different? I was always thinking of it as being different rather than, oh, a kind of volume two, you know, that clearly takes up and develops, you know, and possibly even chronologically has a certain, I am picking up now from where I left. I knew I didn't want that. I knew I had realized writing Negroland that acknowledging that intimate part of me is in fact the critic. You know, it's not suddenly, oh, okay, you're writing a memoir, you're confessional, you're, you know, you're dramatic, you're that. No, you're also a critic. So I wanted to dig further inside, maybe find the more wild parts of what we call criticism, which really often has to do with fandom, with irrational passions, with this personal, often secret culture that we're acquiring, you know, as we grow up. And that sometimes is partnering with, but sometimes in opposition to the more formal ideological and educational modes. It can also violate hierarchies, that personal culture of one. You know, it's some piece of ephemera, some tawdry, vulgar object, as your superego might see, it could be something that just thrills you over and over. So I wanted to get at that, to set that part of myself as a writer, as a critic loose. And I wanted to use that as as intimate a mode of memoir, as the memoir that comes from those materials of our parents, our upbringing, our social and historical and racial and gendered identities. I mean, those are the tried and true and honored and honorable materials of memoir, but I wanted to see how closely it could be bound up 
with one's own cultural autobiography. I was wondering, the metaphor of a nervous system is so interesting to me because, you know, here you are in this book constructing your own nervous system. But when I think of a nervous system, it's also something that is constructed for us by our parents and especially by our mother, I think. Yes, I could not agree more. Um, and maybe that's why the book came so quickly, you know, to involve my struggle, very blatant struggle with my mother after she had died. But that sense of something that was destined, you know, even a, the nervous system that scientists talk about, it's, it's given you, basically. You know, it's, you, you can fiddle around with it, but it's an imposed inheritance. So I liked that tension. And I like the idea that it's still a little recalcitrant, the idea of this nervous system. You know, you don't have total control over it. You're always negotiating with the parts that seem to be fixed. And that also means you have to be nimble and resourceful. And I'm always interested in different voices, in different persona, whatever. So you have to keep doing that or at least change your position in the drama or the comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the construction of a nervous system also seems to be about the interrogation of inheritance. You're not literally making a new nervous system, but you're no. constructing from what you were given. That's right. From the And you're adding some new materials, but they still are added to what you were given. You know, you can't escape that, but you can keep. When you're reconstructing, you're taking material, even if it's just a little house that was already there. But if you are resourceful enough, you can use it in a different way. And that means it can be seen and felt in a somewhat different way that still retains some kind of fidelity to, to maybe to its origins. But maybe not. You know, maybe you improvise wildly and try to leave the origins behind. I don't think I did that, actually. I, I don't think that was my end. I think I wanted the origins to show. Yeah. And I think something that comes up so much here in terms of familial legacy is this sense of being an asset to your race, being perfect because, you know, the racist world will allow no less. That sense given to you by both your parents and that not leaving space for these other parts of oneself. Sometimes, you know, I think now we discuss things a lot in terms of negative affect, ugly feelings, claiming much more space for them now, but also as well, you know, the even more severe cases of mental distress I'm curious when, when in your life you started to allow yourself to acknowledge those feelings more, what, if any, was a turning point for you and instead of feeling that you weren't allowed to have those kinds of feelings. And also, you know, early on here, you talk about the unworthy parts of yourself. Yes. To be a person of consequence, right? You have to get rid of the unworthy parts. Yeah. And are the unworthy parts those kind of ugly feelings? They certainly are when you are young enough and as much in the sway of your family, but also of society. You know, yes, you are very, very sensitive to what's considered unworthy, whether it's in your home, you know, or in the whole social world you inhabit, the schools you go to. You're very aware of that because your life depends, doesn't it, on being aware of that and figuring out how to behave. If you're going to rebel, 
then you have to figure out ways to rebel while still prospering (laughs) as the child that your family and your world want you to be. So that's, that's always going on. I think my sense that the unworthy was very, very interesting, even in me. I mean, I've always had a sense of that in art that I was interested in, that what was a little wild, what was not licensed, what I liked to think I was avant-garde. So that was not the problem. But the psychological self was a rather more prim, chipper little creature. I think getting to college, I went to college in 64. The world was absolutely up for grabs. You know, everything going on outside you, politically, socially, aesthetically, was pushing against the most conventional assumptions. That totally helped that. But that's when I began to discover that I had much more grief inside me. I remember once an acting teacher at Brandeis where I was in college was holding forth about, you know, the character of a good actor. And he said, you know, they often have very unhappy childhoods. And I thought, ah, I had a completely happy childhood. I won't be a good actress. And then years later, I thought, well, you know, there were many privileges and pleasures in my childhood, but no, it was fine. What? What was I thinking? (laughs) You know, that's the kind of self-propaganda. In a sense, it would have been unworthy to be too unhappy, I suppose, or I didn't know how to perform it. Some people are better at being openly rebellious by temperament. Others of us have to be more devious. But after college, I came to New York. I first I wanted to act, then I wanted to write. (laughs) You have to start examining yourself. I felt paralyzed, even though I began to write. I started seeing a therapist, that even when this, that, or the next therapist is not ideal, we've all in the course of many years moved through different therapists. Something, the enterprise, the, you know, the journey of therapy is always reminding you. It's always there to remind you that things must be done, that you're misreading or simplifying. That really started when I was in my 20s. So that's been going on a long time. So, you know, this is not a straight path. It does not have one of those perfect arcs, that journey, trying to find a usable and interesting self that is mobile, that is in process, that gives you some sense that that continual construction and investigation are possible in terms of who you are and what you do. Meaning, I write, you know, (laughs) I'm a single woman. I have families constructed of friends as well as family. So, you know, how does one put all this together? I was lucky. You know, I mentioned all the movements of the late 60s, but I came to New York around 1970, the women's movement, white, black, and Latinx, every form of the women's movement was starting. Gay liberation, which we would now call queer liberation, was starting. So you had to keep moving and you had... I found that very exhilarating because I felt I had been static. I had started off being a kind of vibrant kid, but had become rather static in those middle adolescent years and even through college. So, you know, I was thrilled to be shaken up by things and to also know that they matched the things that were going on inside me and in fact exceeded, exceeded them. That gave me a sense of license and even of rightness. Yeah, you know, in Negroland, it's almost like an aside when you say 
in the seventies, I thought often about killing myself. You know, (laughs) after I've just done this PM to the 70s, well, you know, you get, it was almost a throwaway, at least until I presented my methodology. You know, in a way, I think that is something about depression and mine turned out to be somewhat bipolar. You feel better and then you say, oh, this isn't going to happen again. I'm I'm fine, you know, or I, I can manage it. I was very good at managing and at seeming to excel. and. So this became the, the fits of, oh, I'm going to kill myself. It became almost a ritual countermedicine, you know, the, way, the way doctors will inject you with the things you're allergic to so that your system will adjust. I think that really how I began to use what people now call suicide ideation. In the book, you write about your father's depression as well, speaking of other inheritances. And yeah. I found so poignant this thing that you write about your dad wanting to become a pediatrician because, let me quote it, you say, he said, I wanted to find out what was wrong with people who couldn't tell me themselves. I know. That Um, almost killed me when the first time he said it. The first and maybe last time he said it, yeah. But then there's also this sense that your father kind of wished that he, if he didn't feel that he had to be of service to his race and of this model minority, that he might have preferred to be a musician. That's my sense, even though, or perhaps after he left this all behind, which would have been in his 20s or 30s, as far as I know, he's never played the trombone again. He didn't have to decide to live that way. You know, he could have formed a group with friends and, you know, given himself those pleasures. But often melancholia, depression, renunciation, feeling you have to renounce something becomes very, very punitive. You punish yourself. You almost punish what you had to renounce. I don't need you anymore. I don't need you in my life. I think also he had felt that he was talented, but not as talented as he wanted to be and possibly he would have kept being reminded of that, which is speaking of, you know, inheriting a legacy of needing to be perfect and making huge sacrifices, chopping off portions of yourself in a sense, if you're not, that's to me a, a mournful example of that. How did he and your mother relate to you and your sister both becoming artists in a sense and working in the arts? You know, actually once they had made clear when we were young especially to my sister, because she was a dancer and dancers need to start so young. It's not a question of you're not getting your college degree. And it's not really a question if you're not getting a master's degree. You're doing that. And in fact, my sister did get a master's degree in French lit, you know, while also dancing. Once that was settled, which we could do basically in our early 20s, they were delighted. They were thrilled. That had been very much a part of the pleasures when we were growing up with them. They were always taking us to concerts, to jazz clubs, to here's the opera, here's ballet, here's Pearl Primus. You know, they loved that. So once it no longer seemed a threat, once it seemed a way of our achieving as well as being happy, they could take pleasure in what it had to offer. You write about identifying with men and many of the men are musicians, 
Ike Turner, Bud Powell, for instance. And I find it interesting that these are men of such pathos. Violence. Right? I mean, yes, that's absolutely (laughs) right. Violent pathos. (laughs) Right. And just going back to repressed feelings or repressing parts of ourselves, do you think that the violence and pathos was part of the appeal beyond just that these were great musicians and great artists? I mean, was it that these men had, as you write, they had an aura of presentational license that you might not have felt yourself? Absolutely. And that combination with Bud Powell of his genuinely being a genius was, you know, (laughs) as well as something of a tragic figure because of all the breakdowns and the drug. But, you know, that was, that's an old American story, isn't it? Identifying with the tormented genius. And those parts are equally potent. And also his music gave me such pleasure from childhood on, not early childhood, from about the age of 10 on. I Turner, it's trickier because he was smart and accomplished, but he was no genius. So I think, uh, (laughs) no, he wasn't. So I think that that's really tied up to that teenage girl, bad boy. You know, I was not going to, and that's fine, really seriously engage myself with, take those risks of being involved with a real bad boy in life. You know, I had a few crushes from a farm, but they were never as bad as Ike Turner. But that I can do whatever I want and I don't have to smile and I'm controlling, you know, the beat, the pace. That that was very, very thrilling and forbidden to me. Even in, um, in terms of gender, in terms of men in my world, you know, my father and mother had some friends who acted up and acted out, but Essentially, the men of that professional class were conducting themselves in a respectable, upright way. We find ways to rebel without necessarily literally acting them out, right? Right, of course. Yeah, and I guess it's like, you know, you kind of implicate yourself in this obsession. Implicate this white rate, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, um, you know, like this white obsession with Black male bodies and um, performers. But I think it's, you're kind of getting into a pretty unruly territory of a question of, did you want to be these men? Did you desire them? Were you obsessed with them? You know, it seems like it's a little unclear what exactly your purpose with them was and not that it should be clear. I think that's right. I think my purpose with the ones I spend a little less time on, the elegant, you know, rather soigné ones, the Nat King Coles, the Billy Eckstein's, you know, that's a kind of vision of elegant Black manhood, a kind of vision of elegance that tends in those days to have been denied Black men and so for them to perform it, for them to make it so available and so thrilling, so seemingly effortless. This countered so deeply and so ecstatically almost all of the, you know, laborious cliches about the black body and the black violent hot self. But Powell, I don't feel that I was implicated. I feel that I was awestruck truly awed by the genius, but also by the capacity to suffer and keep making art. I found that fascinating. You know, many years later, I would find that fascinating in Virginia Woolf. 
as different as they are, that capacity to keep suffering, to manage your breakdowns and just keep doing the art is very different from what I feel I would be capable of and very valiant. I find it valorous, frightening and valorous. Do you feel like when you were growing up, you didn't have that same kind of model of a Black woman who was celebrated for those things? I mean, you're saying kind of the identification with men you write is also partly because of a lack of female avatars for yourself. With that kind of power and strength and license and worship. No, they weren't there. Or when they were in positions of stardom, that attention and admiration was not lavished upon them in the same way. And they just did not have, most of them, the license to act up and act out while also making their art, to create this larger-than-life persona. Billie Holiday was one of the only ones who did that. And at exactly the same cost, if not more of a cost, but she did do it. Yeah, I love your line about being between um, Ma Rainey and Sylvia Plath. <laughs> right. that, was no, that was another facet. Yeah, I mean, you, that's very astute because that's a way of getting towards women who are claiming that kind of license. I didn't know them when I was growing up, you know. I discovered right. both of them probably in the 70s. That's when Ma Rainey began to be reissued. That's when Sylvia Plath was really starting to be widely read. The counter to someone like Bud Powell is probably like Ella Fitzgerald, who you write about, who had this insane past, but who was very prim, proper, kept in her box. Yes. Decorous, except at her best as a musician, but everything else. Decorum, good taste, but not glamour. Never giving off the way, say, Alina Horn did, you know, smoky, even if um, not quite approachable sexuality, not beautiful and not with what was considered. Again, I'm thinking of the early 20th century, the first half of it, what was considered a typical black voice. Too bad. You know, she used it in every kind of way. She scattered. She used it in what people thought of as white ways, and she made the music hers. She used it in what people thought of as black ways, scatting, improvising. She even actually sings blues quite well. (laughs) So, you know, she was surrounded by potential lockdowns. She doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. She doesn't have that. And this musical genius that could, like, lob her into another world. Not every record. You know, some of those um, songbooks are, are decorous, but they're musical. And she was a mass culture popular artist. Every popular culture artist does a certain amount of, okay, this is good. (laughs) This is what the public wants. This is not me at my best. Over there is me at my best. That's the nature of the beast. The quality of work is astonishing. And also the discipline. Maybe she was partly ashamed, sure, but a certain discipline required not to milk that, oh, I was an orphan, oh, I was abused, you know, not just, no, this is my private material. I will guard it as I see that you will take what I have to offer, which is a great deal. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Margot Jefferson, author of Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
have Claire Louise Bennett on the line with us today. Her new book is called Check Out 19. It's a novel. And she is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Claire Louise, what book are you going to recommend? The book I'm recommending is called Letters to Gwen John by Celia Paul. Have you read it? I haven't, but it's on my list. It's on my virtual nightstand um, where it shouldn't be because I haven't read it. But tell me about it. So I've got a little bit to go. I haven't I haven't uh, finished it entirely, but I read it over the weekend. Uh, there was a really big storm here over the weekend and I stayed in bed with it. And it was just really the best thing to be tucked up with. It's an epistolary novel made up of letters that Celia Paul has written to Gwen John. They're both artists. Gwen John was born in uh, Wales, I think in about 1876. And Celia Paul is... Uh, a living British artist. I think she's in her maybe late 50s, early 60s now. And Celia Paul is writing to her because she feels certain kind of parallels and affinities with uh, Gwen John. They're both painters. They both paint portraits of women. They have a particular style where there's, I don't know, a number of, I guess, similarities. There's a simplicity there, but a kind of a, I don't know, really beautiful profundity to their work. They're incredibly striking pieces, but also what they have in common is that they were both involved with with men, eminent male artists, and that association obscured or in some way overshadowed to some degree their own achievement and talent. So Gwen John was involved with Rodin and her brother, uh, Augustus John, was like a really successful painter as well. So she, in order to, I suppose, experience some independence and, and get out of the shadow, I suppose, of her brother, she went to Paris and she spent some time in Paris and she paid her way by modeling for um, artists. And that's how she met Rodin. And Celia Paul was involved with Lucien Freud when she was like really young. I think she was like 18. She was at college when she, when she met him or he, you know, whatever way it worked. So that's like a kind of a connection that they have. And I just love the way that Celia Paul writes about about those experiences and writes about how she has protected her, I suppose, her creative power and how solitude is absolutely central to what she does. And um, she lives alone and she's always lived alone all her adult life. She did have a son, I think sometime in the 80s, early 80s, and he was brought up by her mother and she that yeah that's a very big decision to take and she's lived in the same flat near the British Library for almost 40 years now I think and it's a very austere sounding place there's very little uh, comforts in the real personal effects so it's it's kind of interesting this world that she's created for herself in order to to work so I've loved it it's beautifully written she doesn't it's hard to explain. She doesn't analyze. There's no, there's never any recrimination towards anybody. I mean, she met Lucien when she was 18. I think he was in his 50s. Um, never anything particularly about whether that was right or wrong. You know, I mean, and things have been said and will continue to be said about that. But I found it interesting that she doesn't, she doesn't really go there. Mm. But at the same time, it feels like an incredibly honest book. It's really honest. There's a real, I don't know, anyway. I, it's very hard to articulate, isn't it, sometimes, when a book really strikes you. And like I said, I, I still I read it just at the weekend and I've still a little way to go. So, 
it's very fresh, I suppose. I haven't really processed it, maybe. It sounds wonderful. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's called Letters to Gwen John, and it's by Celia Paul. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We have been speaking to Claire Louise Bennett. Her new novel is called Checkout 19. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Margot Jefferson, author of Constructing a Nervous System. The way you write about some of the press, about her physical appearance, is really abhorrent and it's and, really and kind of off, just so awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, but it's, <laughs> but it's awful. It's really awful to read. Um, there's so much in here about kind of myths of femininity and just as someone who was so much a part of the women's movement in the seventies, I'm curious when you were breaking down certain myths of femininity, you know, be they, did you guys get into like the kind of more granular racial aspects of them? Because even yeah. here you're writing about, you know, like the white woman, the like white femininity and like a white woman who never sweats on stage, like Ella Fitzgerald pouring sweat. Um, but that <laughs> yeah. also seems like a myth to me as well, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm which, curious. Which, which seems like a myth. Well, even this, I, I think that the idea of a, of a white, the perfect white oh, feminine. It's totally good. Yeah. And, you know, tailor-made for an attractive um, white woman. And so she could, she could impersonate it and it could seem very smooth and almost invisible and therefore just, you know, like Roland Barthes says, the you know, real mythology is working when everybody assumes, you know, <laughs> it's, it's natural. <laughs> so, yeah, we started, yes, um, we really did. I'm thinking of, you're really asking me about the Black feminist movement. We really started digging in to that. I do not, I have to confess, remember confessing that um, anxiety, which was very class-bound as well, and that is can be in some certain ways even more embarrassing than this, you know, critique we were all making of the ways in which we've been brainwashed as women. But we we got into the the stuff of the body, the stuff of how, um, you know, your your physicality, you know, just things like the timbre of your voice um, are turned into, you know, fixed modalities of being. Um, yeah, we we were we were and we were trying to break through. Um, very much those proprieties, which Negroland is so much about, of, you know, the ways in which you had to um, live up to um, and help create and help, you know, perpetuate the Black, Black version of white haute bourgeois propriety. So we, we were really trying to, <laughs> to take it apart, yes, and not be, by which I mean to... to not feel that we were its products and still enthralled to it. Well, we were its products, but not not still enthralled. And yeah, and I I'm also curious about those kind of you know myths as they relate to aging. Because in the book, there's this this little kind of um, a scene of you at the 
at the gym and people coming up to you <laughs> telling you, you know, Oh, like, Oh, I thought you were so much younger. And, um, and, uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I had never written about that before. Um, by the way, I do also want to say, I'm going to jump back. Um, um, you know, the feminist, I made very clear, you know, that I was talking about black feminism. I was living in both a world that was largely white in terms of feminism and all black. Um, and that ended up, there were strains, there were struggles, but that ended up being of use because one could keep comparing and and uh, changing and, and yeah, and inter-trading. Inter, inter, one could keep comparing and trading information. Um, and look at one's look at look at these two realities simultaneously and try not to be um, at the at the mercy of either of them but now you what, what were you just asking oh yeah yeah well just about aging oh about yeah. these myths of feminism as just because I guess I'm curious reading the book um you know, you reference people saying, oh, like I, you know, this kind of backhanded compliment, which is like, oh, she was once, I could tell she, she was, was once a beauty. A beauty. How she was a beauty. Yeah. She's still very How much do you think? <laughs> right. But I guess then again, it, it kind of brings me back to this construct of beauty, which is like, of course, there is some natural change when it comes to aging, but it, does it also just reflect such a narrow conception of what is beautiful and kind of when women are allowed to have sexuality and when they're oh. there, it's, you know, useful or, you know, more comfortable for everyone when they discard it. Um, and it very much um, comes down to that. And I did not go into all of that. Um, that's still very much a process for me. Um, what I wanted to, to do, while still, I just think, giving myself a certain ironic, comic, you know, um, protective coloration. Uh, but I realized that more and more, um, since we hit our 60s, I would say, the women I knew, we, we were encountering this this, this fact that people looked at us differently on the street, that we as feminists, they, had a responsibility to handle this, you know, intelligently, you know, not hysterically, not with total, total vanity. And yet we still had plenty of vanity. Um, it meant that, you know, certain, while certain options opened up for you, um, certain possibilities were also closing down. Um, that was very, 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 it was unsettling. Um, and what I wanted to actually capture was um, how, you know, using a little cluster of friends, um, how we registered um, the dissatisfaction, the, the wounded vanity, um, <laughs> the sense that the men um, around us still had more options than we did. Um, I was using, using comedy, I hope, to point to point up a certain awareness. But no, I haven't yet. Um, hopefully I will um, really um, moved into this space where, okay, here I am. Um, am I going to, for example, stop coloring my hair, which I'm doing? Well, what happens when I decide to do that? Um, what about makeup? You know, what about, we're, all the women I know of my age were always comparing notes about, um, because we all love, we all love, at least the women I'm talking about, we love clothes, we love fashion, but comparing notes about what's appropriate 
you know, to to one's age. <laughs> one friend of mine who, in fact, is in the book said once, well, you could get away with it, but would you want to? <laughs> so well, we're always checking and spelling each other in that way and trying to make it um, as much social comedy as it is realism and fear of mortality. You know, it's yeah, not just the face and the, and the wardrobe and the appearance. It's, you know, how is your body functioning? You know, it's, right. it's, it's life and death material, which honestly, I just was not aware of 30, 30, 30 years ago. Yeah. So that's more to be, more to be reckoned with, I would say. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll wait for another volume um, for <laughs> that reckoning. <On> <laughs> Um, you, there's a, <laughs> that's the, <laughs> the, the next book. Um, I, you know, there's a early on here, you're kind of asking, um, can memoir and criticism merge? Um, and, and when you ask that, it made me reflect that a lot of my favorite memoirists are critics oh. and, um, yeah, I mean, okay. Hilton Owls, Hilton yeah. Owls would be, you know, someone I would just think of. Some yeah. of my the favorite life writing has has been done by him. Michelle Orange is another writer who I who I love and flourishing now. In a sense, it was a rhetorical question, or it was a question I was asking myself because that that mixture is um, is absolutely flourishing. This is a this is a good time in many ways for so called literary or creative. The adjective is always a little little lumpy. Um, nonfiction and that. You know, this this way, this combination of memoir with other passions, be they as with Hilton um, or with me in certain ways, particularly art and and um, maybe histor- his- history, identity driven with someone else. It could be science or, you know, but that those mixtures, that sense, again, that one can tell one's life story through many um, forms and modes. Um, yeah. And that one yeah. is not interesting against the other. That's that's it. Yeah, yeah. I I I, I read those people. <laughs> I know. I Elizabeth Hardwick. I need to. Yeah. But so is there? I mean, is that the affinity? You know, that just that there's a lot of ways to interrogate a self, and and that a lot of it could be cultural residue. A lot, yes. But also, there are a lot of ways to interrogate the arts and your position as a critic of the arts, all of which sounds, you know, and has a tradition of being rather, um, maybe officious is a slightly um, unkind word, but, you know, certainly authoritative, you know, and always in, almost always in some position um, that it suggests control, mastery, uh, you know, um, (laughs) society, how we view um, texts, how we view art, how we view these wildly shifting, you know, canons and, and, constructions um, of what beauty means, of what ugliness is, of what, of what hierarchies um, of, of power and aesthetics are. Uh, that leaves, that necessitates a lot of ways of querying your so-called singular um, and unitary critical self. Uh, you know, you're, you're an you're very knowledgeable this week. I'm thinking of when you were on, when one was on a beat and every week, you know, then no, um, this is interesting to me. I'm, I'm an amateur. How do I find a voice for that? How I, I got more and more interested in my last years um, as a full-time critic in um, 
what, how do you reckon with and make vulnerability and ambiguity um, as you encounter, you know, as you encounter a work of art? How do you make that interesting for a reader? Um, how do you spark them to want not to go um, necessarily to, to a work of art looking for mastery? Um, you know, how do you make the questions um, and what you don't know um, you know, as interesting and is worth pursuing and for the reader as well as for you. So that mattered, I would say, in many ways, just as much to me. I was, you know, try, trying to um, revise, reconstruct in many ways my own, my own um, life as a critic. Do you think there's something lost? Um, you know, I'm thinking of the way you write about Willa Cather here with works that you know, once once analyzed, once kind of thought through might infuriate us um, or confuse us or, you know, leave us uh, ambivalent. Um, is there something lost if, if we just discard those works yeah. because yeah. of those yeah. aspects of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, someone asked me if I would ever teach the Song of the Lark again, that kind of novel. And I said, I, you know, I don't teach many novels now. I said she quickly, you know, to kind of buy herself a little time. But when I said, yes, you know, um, I would teach it better this time around. Um, I absolutely would because I had in hand all of these contradictions and I actually could use them to push um, myself um, and my students and our awareness of the complexities and hypocrisies and unresolvable contradictions and yet here one is um you know with this work some of which is magnificent that's really all totally totally worth um living with and examining but you know one has to decide which works for you you jamie me which which ones make us want to do that which ones matter enough but absolutely, um, you know, keep keep them available always, always. No, don't don't mm -hmm. prohibit in advance. In closing, I want to ask you about this observation that you make here, and you also kind of give some advice. You say that a writer works with her lack as well as what she has, and that you know a writer should look at when fluencies become clever distractions. And basically saying that artists need to find their own way and make work based on who they are. Um, I'd love to hear what you think of as your lacks or things that you've had to work with and um, how, how those have been shaped to you into, into something you think is distinctive well, I hope. about your work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, I even, I think I even say in Negroland that I, no, not in Negroland. It's here. Um, I clearly have known it for some years now that my um, I don't have one of those gifts for like, you know, opulent, vibrant, acute um, um, description. Um, I don't mean I can't describe things well, but, you know, no. Um, um, I can tell myself, well, you know, sometimes I just don't literally visually see certain things that clearly because I'm nearsighted. I think that's a little bit of an excuse. Um, I would say that's not my great gift. So I have to work harder when I really want to look closely at some scene. It might be, you know, it, it might be an, on a stage in front of me. It might be, you know, in the park across the street from me. But I, when I really have to work hard to gather my visual sensory material. 
I don't feel that way about oral, but I do do with the visual. So, okay. Um, I think I am extremely good, for example, at seeing um, contradictions. There are two or three possible ways of looking at something, of, you know, examining um, possibilities, options, complications, but that can sometimes make me and has for many, many years too, um, too, too courteous. Know, to everybody, a little too decorous, um, a little too, well, let's look at the other side of that now too. So I think tonally, I have not worked with as wide a range or register as I, as I would like to. Um, I think there's much more, um, much more anger in this book, open, openly expressed and dramatized anger than in other books. And that was deliberate, um, you know, as a writer, I wanted to really explore that along with, well, okay, it's inside me, but I really wanted to see what technically in terms of language and tone, you know, how, how I could make that, how I could make that live um, and, and not just, you know, blank everything out with a kind of wildness, how it could be strategic as well as very intense. Um, and I'm still working on that for sure. Yeah. You're so good at enacting like, as I said, my introduction, this kind of super ego voice, this, this feeling of shame, this, this way that we talk to ourselves. That, yes, that, yes. This, this disdain, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. I'm, thank you. And the, that one I didn't even <laughs> work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think that is, that is actually, you know, in a sense, one of the most vulnerable things anyone can admit to is the way they treat themselves. You know, that's, that's um people people don't talk as much about that as as one might as one might think so for someone who you know who kind of by keeping certain boundaries in, intact you also kind of give up the greatest secret in the end which is you know your a lot of your relationship to yourself that's i that's i really like the way you put that yeah 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 uh, well i'm getting better at that you know criticism Traditional criticism um, has a, tends to allow you to keep a, to keep a safe distance from that kind of revelation, doesn't it? Because you're re, you're revealing what you want to reveal and something that matters a lot through how you're seeing the art. But that also does mean a lot is not being said or seen or um, necessarily acknowledged. Thank you for acknowledging it here, and and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was Margot Jefferson. Her latest book is called Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Blotton.